Hey, think about this when you're doing your middle yeah, woodland episode. And by the way, I think if you guys can do the middle woodland in three <laughs> hours, you're 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 going to be doing well. Okay. So yeah, we were joking about breaking it up into the first fifteen years. So you guys always say that all my hunches work, and that's not true. And one of the hunches that I had that didn't work is this. When I started doing research here on shell middens, I was completely, I had my West Coast goggles on 100%. And so when we excavated those shell middens, I thought, okay, shell middens, they're not as big as the ones on the West Coast, but this is kind of normal coastal archaeology, right? This is what coastal archaeology is supposed to be like. So when I started looking at the early woodland stuff and I started looking at the late woodland stuff, but I realized, but the conclusion I jumped to was, that was that the early woodland and the late woodland were aberrant and the middle woodland was normal. And it took Susan Blair, when she was finished her master's thesis, to turn my head around and say, Dave, suppose it's the middle woodland that's weird right. and the rest of it's normal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think she's absolutely 100% right about that. Yeah. And I think Matt Betts thinks that now too, after yeah. having worked at the Port Charlie stuff. The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, and I am in southern New England today, where it's uh, chilly and sunny outside, and I'm joined, as always, by Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Too bad. It's uh, it's not chilly and sunny here. It is, we've actually, we're, we're getting a break from the, the, the smoke. So uh, the sun looked like uh, we were on Tatooine yesterday, and uh, there was an air quality health index of 10 plus yesterday, which is the, the highest rating that, uh, that Health Canada and Environment Canada can give, which yeah. means uh, it was basically uh, uh, shred your lungs weather here yesterday. Well, that's very exciting. Yeah, usually when Ken and I are doing the podcast, if, if, if it's going to be smoke-filled, we prefer it to be, uh, to be natural with carcinogens of our own, of our own devising. Um, our sponsor this week is the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. And, and Ken, I understand we have some updates from Trevor on what's going on with the website? Yeah, yeah. So our website is down, not actually to, due to inaction on our part, but uh, due to the actions of our uh, uh, web hosting platform. Uh, they've decided to do away with their previously free uh, uh, model of um, uh, website hosting. Uh, so uh, we will now be seeking out a new platform and probably what you'll see in the coming months or weeks hopefully or years uh, is a is a is, <laughs> is a is a completely redesigned uh from scratch uh apa and b website yeah and and just when you've got uh people with the digital confidence of ken holyoke me and trevor dow on it you can just rest assured that that's going to be one heck of a website um you know, we're, we're thinking, uh, I, I've, it's inspired by one of those, uh, those old angel fire sites, you know, with a little, uh, the sort of teal background and, uh, and dancing emojis. It's going to be great. Um, and so uh, we're back from the Canadian Archaeological Association meeting, and it was great to meet a lot of you there. And we really appreciate all the listens we've had on the CAA uh, episode. We apologize for the sound quality, but Ken and I are, are working on getting better at making uh, our our bar shows more audible. We, we feel like that's kind of actually an important skill for us is that we need to be able to do this on the road 
even in the most um, convivial of uh, of settings. And so, uh, so we're going to keep working on that. And uh, we also do not have a new name for this uh, this podcast. We are still we are still listener the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, uh, and we still, in fact, have stickers that say that, um, which we we're we're still looking to offload, but. We uh, would encourage folks to send in suggestions for a new name, something a little bit more exciting for this podcast. And Ken, if the listener had a new name for this podcast, where would they email it to? Uh, new Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. And, and as we always remind the listener, um, we spell archaeology A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. And so that's the, that's the Canadiana spelling of archaeology. I think North American more generally, but uh, I think so. In the states, they tend to drop the the second e or second. Yeah, e. yeah. Every once in a while, it seems to, it seems to go away, but uh, but we're we're a pretty highbrow operation here. Um, and if the the listener were to uh, have the big uh, the big winning entry, Ken, what would they uh, what would they receive? Well, I thought that the uh, where we're getting, you know, we're over fifteen hundred listens now on the podcast. Congratulations! Uh, we've actually crested. This is our eleventh episode, so we've actually gone. We're uh, we're approaching a dozen. Um, we're we're over ten episodes, um, and we're looking into the future. We've just gotten through the conference season. Um, uh, the SAAs, uh, the Society for American Archaeology. Um, I think abstracts are due next Tuesday. <laughs> uh, for next year's conference. And do you know where next year's conference is taking place? I don't. Is it in New Orleans? It's in New Orleans. Okay. Uh, from April 17th to the 21st. And I thought the listener might enjoy an archaeological-themed uh, cruise, um, maybe uh, a journey through the American bottom, uh, you know, take in a little bit of the culture of, of, uh, of uh, the, the southern parts of the United States. And... Traveling in style on a riverboat in the way, the ways, the old ways, uh, how they did it in the, in the 19th century. And, Does it have a big paddle of, on the front? It, uh, it has a big paddle on the back, actually. And so, oh, okay. so we would be, we would request that the, we'll, we'll arrange it so that the listener meets us in, uh, in St. Louis. Um, and uh, I think we'll all go together to Cahokia Mound State, uh, <laughs> State Park. We're going to take a little road trip down to memphis tennessee and there we're going to board the american queen which is at 420 feet and six decks the largest steamboat ever built and uh, uh, uh on six decks of grandeur you've got the grand saloon where uh, uh we can see some broadway caliber entertainment every night uh, we'll have pre-dinner cocktails probably soaked in bourbon on our yeah. way down the river i imagine uh, a, a sazerac is probably the probably just the ticket for this trip it would be and at the captain's bar and uh, we'll be able to lounge in style as uh, as we eat uh, uh fine foods uh relax on the open veranda and view the mississippi river as we sort of slowly meander our way down with stops at, uh, uh, at Natchez and, and check out some of these mound sites, Baton Rouge. And then we'll roll into New Orleans after nine days of, of beautiful cruising uh, uh, for April 17th and, and take in uh, the French Quarter. Um, what well, We've got some distinct connections between New Brunswick and New Orleans with the uh, Acadian heritage uh, in southern United States. Uh, and we'll we'll take the listener on a on a journey uh, back to 1755, and uh, um, uh, all the while uh, 
the soundtrack for that entire nine days will be uh, the band's Acadian Driftwood. Yeah, the war was over, but there's no need for their spirits to be broken. That's that's really the motto of this show, I would say. The uh, Well, that sounds excellent, Ken. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to that. And I, I know the listener is too. And so if, if the listener uh, were to submit a uh, an entry to rename this podcast, where would they send it again? Uh, to New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com, all one word. That's great. But also, I mean, with the theme, we would probably accept, you know, the entry could be could be taped to a bottle of Maker's Mark bourbon and mailed to, mail to either of our offices. That's fine, too. That sounds um, like an excellent way to gain favor with us. And and if if Maker's Mark is looking for uh, uh, a new promotional avenue, uh, we are we we can we can make it a half empty bottle of Maker's Mark. Uh, we, can, we can. We uh, can. Uh, I mean, Covassier is a fine beverage, but uh, but we are partial to the amber restoratives of uh, Kentucky. And so, and so, so, so that actually brings me to uh, it's a good segue into probably one of my, uh, I think what will be my favorite listener mail that we've gotten so far. And oh, and uh, and Gabe. So uh, we received uh, we've got a, an email to share from um, uh, a David uh, uh, about uh, Fidel's two thousand one and some population stuff, but we're going to go off uh-huh. around that afterwards, um, because it actually, we'll talk about it maybe a little bit in the context of what we're, uh, what we're going to talk about in the theme today, but we got a, uh, we got an email from Wally. Um, oh, good. Says, Wally Ireland? Wally Ireland, who says, Fantastic. hello from Ottawa. Thank you for both continuing to release new episodes of the podcast. Now that I'm truly, I truly count as a UNB alum, the fortnightly peek back into the world of academic archaeology in the Northeast is very welcome. Unfortunately, it has the the two side effects of introducing threads I'd love to follow up on when I go to grad school someday, and increasing the TBR, which I'm thinking is probably to be read, pile I'd need to slog to, through in order to do so. As I joked about in an email to Gabe about the podcast a while ago, I made a bingo sheet that reflects the listener experience. <laughs> there, and I'm, 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 so the listener can't see this, but I'm now going to share my screen with Gabe so that he can see this bingo sheet. There are 30 possible boxes. Oh, wow. So hopefully, generating a few cards will show off the complete range. I've tried <laughs> to keep things relatively balanced between the two of us, despite being better acquainted with Gabe as a former student of his. <laughs> I loved the most recent episode about the CAAs, and I'm definitely interested in some of the potential future episodes you teased. <laughs> the CRM and field school topics were particularly interesting because they're such an important part of archaeology that don't, in my opinion, get quite enough attention. Cheers, Wally. So thank you so much, Wally. Yeah. And, and this is this has to go up uh, on on Instagram, I think. I think so. And, uh, and there there are some great uh, uh, potential bingo. Uh, so so um, example site is not New Brunswick. Uh, yeah. Calgary Airport Chili's. Uh, <laughs> exaggerated conversions into kilometers or Canadian dollars. <laughs> Baseball reference. Yeah what, yeah. What, uh, uh, I like the uh, Ken notices a weird pattern in pop culture references. <laughs> Right. How many right. times have we mentioned King Kong? I, I got the, <laughs> the um, guy... uh, well now probably three or four. I guess so. The, the I like inside joke needs context. Yeah. <laughs> this this so, is this yeah, this we... is excellent. So yes. um, I, I think actually uh, our listeners need to have access to this. So we'll share both the link that Wally provided us with to the generator. Yeah. Um, and and a screenshot of this particular bingo. So this is just one of many um uh, uh bingo placards <laughs> that you can get 
<laughs> in playing new, new Brunswick Archaeology podcast bingo. And I wonder if maybe um, uh, our prize, uh, we, we almost need to offer a prize for uh, a, a bingo sheet. I, maybe, I know, we're going to... Maybe a new contest that. where the listener tags us on Instagram with a completed bingo sheet? Maybe so, and then we'll have to come up with a prize. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will we will think about this. This is this is this is good, Wally. Thank you very much for sending this in. Uh, Wally's a, a UNV alum who's an archaeologist in, uh, well, in usually in northern New England, but is is working in uh, Ontario this summer. So so thanks and thanks for listening again, Wally. This is uh, thoughtful. In a, in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I I, uh, I I was very pleased with that. So. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty yes, funny. Thank you, Wally. Um, and and so we do have other listener mail, um, and it's from David, um, who Dave McKinnis, who actually published a paper basically on population demographics, um, sort of uh, talking about um, uh, the sort of the calculations that he uses for um, estimating population dynamics, and 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 it was in reference to the early woodland stuff. That so um, the. Uh, dates as data, evidence is about population change. Um, it suggests population decreased during the late archaic and increased during the early centuries of the early woodland in the Maritimes. I'm not at all confident about comparing population levels between two periods of time during which technology varied because different technologies generate different quantities of data book material. Firing pottery created a lot of charcoal. However, archaeological periods are actually technological epochs, epochs within, so within period comparisons can be made with more confidence. Um, I didn't read the whole email there, but basically what, uh, what David's paper was, um, was published in um, Archaeology of Eastern North America. I think we referenced it in the show notes for the early Woodland episode. I think we did, yeah. Um, and what he did is he did some calculations based on radiocarbon dates uh, to estimate population. Is that correct? That's right. So the, yeah. the premise of, he's, he did this, um, he's done this in Europe too, actually. And, and, but the, the premise is basically that, and, and people do this all over, North America is basically that during a time period, a greater population should produce more datable material. Therefore, archaeologists should have produced more radiocarbon or should basically get more radiocarbon dates from those periods. So you can take like a big index of all the radiocarbon dates run in a particular region and use those spike, use like the, the higher parts in the, the, the periods with a greater number of radiocarbon dates should correspond to a relative increase in population, is my understanding. Um, this is almost something that we should get Dave on someday, maybe next season to explain, you know, as kind of a method, because I'm, I'm not doing it justice. Um, yeah, totally. But it's, uh, it's super interesting uh, as an approach. And for a whole bunch of theoretical reasons involving math, it should work. Yeah. And he was an economist by training, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he, I believe he's got a he's got a graduate degree in in archaeology, but I think he also has a graduate degree in economics. He certainly knows a lot about economics and a lot about math. So, yeah, which is he's, something uh, that uh, if the listener hasn't noticed, Gabe and I, <laughs> this is our weak suit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we rely on others to do the complex maths for the uh, for the work that we that we take part in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Money and math are are not exactly things Ken and I are good at, but they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, such is life. Uh, so thanks very much for that, uh, Dave. But did he have, did he have sort of a take home point from that email? Did had we erred about something or? Uh, so it was in in the context of how we had brought up um, Fidel uh, talking about using his two thousand one article um, 
as an estimate for population in New York State. Um, and uh, the development of agriculture in New York generated a different pattern of population dynamics than in the Maritimes. Also worth mentioning is that while Fidel 2000, 2001 asserts population was lower in the early woodland relative to the late archaic in New York, his results also indicate population grew throughout the early woodland and fell during the late archaic. Um, his plots tell the story. So, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so he, I, I think his point was basically that um, it's hard to take two moments in time and compare them. Um, mm -hmm in that way so yeah cool and, yeah and, that's... and perhaps uh, perhaps we will have a an addendum and an eratum uh when uh, david corrects that we misinterpreted his email uh <laughs> but um I'll, I'll try to remember to throw dave's paper in the show notes again this time too though so the listener can can check that out it's very good yeah um because it does have some bearing on today's topic it does and and so today's topic uh we're going to talk about the middle maritime woodland period which is uh, about 2200 to 1300 years ago. And um, I think there's just one of the ways that I've always thought of it. So I was talking to uh, Arts Beast once, and he kind of mentioned that one of the interesting things about this period and the way I've kind of thought about it is that even though for a long time, people tended to think about the... Uh, middle maritime woodland as dave black said as a single undifferentiated adaptation spanning the years from uh, you know about 2200 1300 that turns out not to be the case and so uh, art pointed out to me once that the um there's a couple of different things that seem to radiate out from basically the great lakes at the beginning of this period and we can think about this the first kind of obvious one is dentate ceramic form so these are ceramics that the outside is decorated as if it's sort of with a toothed implement, like a like a comb, using a comb to put decorations on the outside of ceramics, or sometimes a, a scallop shell. Um, although didn't someone suggest that the scallop shell was just uh, a comb, but used by someone that was arthritic? Oh, that would be I, a lot I, of people with arthritis, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think. I th well, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, Pseudo scallop shell is is the is the terminology we use. PSS. You'll see yeah, that a lot, actually. Absolutely. But then there's, there's an some that doesn't have an A in it. Oh yeah! Wow, good for us. <laughs> and then the um, the other thing that happens is you get the Matthias Bay petroglyphs. There's our type site that it doesn't have that's not from New Brunswick, I guess. Um, the or the starts of the Matthias Bay petroglyphs, the densest concentration of petroglyphs in the um, northeast, and it's pre-contact petroglyphs in the northeast, and that site is interesting in part because the many of the petroglyphs appear to be in Ojibwe, following kind of Ojibwe motifs. And then you also have Wabanaki oral tradition talking about people moving, you know, presumably from sort of the Great Lakes into the region. So you've got this kind of interesting cultural thing happening at the end of the early woodland, at the beginning of the middle woodland. And so along with this, this then kind of riffs on these these big what's what's kind of going on in north america which is hopewell um and so ken you you've been thinking a lot about hopewell lately i know the i know <laughs> the uh, ken and i just you know spent a long time in a car together uh moving very very fast in a mercedes-benz uh minivan uh and and uh so but Hopewell is another one of these things that we understand in part through mounds throughout the Northeast, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you know, one of these very elaborate um, 
uh, sort of uh, uh, kind of radiating out of the Midwest or, or thought to be kind of uh, uh, origins in the, in the Midwest um, uh, continent-wide movements. So Hopewell, you see there's these, uh, I don't know who prepares these, um, these maps, uh, but you find them like if you do a quick Google search for like uh, like Adina or Hopewell maps, they come up with these sort of um, oh, they're really colorful like, ones on Wikipedia, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I have no idea and who does this. I don't know who does them, but but so you can see that the influence of Hopewell extends. So we talked about Adina having kind of this sort of um, uh, influence. Adina Middlesex kind of having this influence into uh, the far northeast. Um, Hopewell is less sort of um, concrete than, than, uh, um, uh, than what you might vision, envision an Adena uh, manifestation being, but Hopewell's reach is actually much larger. So um, I'm located out in, in Lethbridge here, and there are very clear indications of interactions during, in the Hopewell interaction sphere, um, even into the plains. And so, um, you know, there's a sort of famous uh, a drawing, I think is, uh, I have it, I think it's a National Geographic thing um, that shows, you know, Knife River um, chert coming from, uh, you know, uh, uh, like Montana and Wisconsin. You've got obsidians from the Rockies. You've got uh, grizzly bear teeth from the Rockies. You've got copper coming from the Great Lakes. Uh, you've got um, mica and shell and galena coming from various parts of the Southeast. And all of this stuff is sort of ending up at these mound sites in sort of the Ohio River Valley. Um, but then these sort of concepts also radiate out from there and you get things like shell becoming, um, shell beads are a present in the early woodland, but you get uh, shell tempering and pottery toward the end of the middle woodland um, that, uh, that might be something that's affiliated with this sort of shell economy. Um, and you get very elaborate um, mounds that are, are uh, not just earthen mounds for burials, they are effigy mounds. And so these are like you know, in the shape of an alligator or in the shape of a snake. Um, you even have some middle woodland, um, probably Hopewell-affiliated mounds in the Great Lakes region, um, uh, which are called the Serpent Mounds um, on Rice Lake in, in southern Ontario. Um, and you have things like the Great Hopewell Road, so what may be sort of this cosmographic uh, 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 sort of uh, journey scape that you have in the Ohio River Valley where people are sort of following what they think might be the uh, the, the land walking down this um, both built and probably figurative road uh, that had some celestial alignment between yeah. two mound sites. I can't the remember listener can't see this, but Ken's actually wearing a fairly cosmographic shirt right now. It, <laughs> it appears to be a, an Aloha shirt that was... Uh, and I think Nat, Natchez, oh, no, it's new, between the Newark Earthworks and, and Chilcoth um, in Ohio, and, and what they think were people were taking these pilgrimages or religious journeys um, following this road. And so it is both a, um, probably a religious movement um, but it's also a, sort of a massive moment of exchange and big things are happening. Um, but <laughs> the counterpart to that is that what we see in the Maritimes is participation into a certain degree, but also like a retraction away from things like that. Yeah, exactly right. So, so, so that thing we just described, which sounds very, very cool, appears to have not been a huge deal uh, in the region oh, we're going to talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, have you have you ever gone and seen any of those mounds, Ken? No, I haven't. So I, I've yeah. never had an opportunity to get like I, I've never been in the Midwest in the states. Yeah, the uh, I 
in um was in West Virginia there many of the ones in West Virginia are are early woodland but you can you actually get a guidebook that you know even gives you like parking instructions about where to go look at these they're, they're pretty amazing many of those are early woodland I mean there's the, the famous one right it's early woodland probably the Grave Creek Mound in Moundsville which is it's huge uh and impressive the West Virginia archaeology unit has a uh, office and lab there and then right across the way is the former maximum security prison which you can also take a tour of uh and the it's the the whole operation is a complete trip i mean but the archaeology is amazing and so uh my partner and i did a did a tour around the region uh looking at a bunch of those with this with this guidebook but they're pretty amazing and and you kind of mentioned these like the serpent mounds and stuff uh, which you know you you really from space they look like that <laughs> standing on them they don't necessarily so yeah um yeah, yeah. so but one of the but what we're going to see if we kind of set the stage now i think that there's a kind of a couple things in this region and by this region i mean the maritime peninsula that we we want to think about and some stuff where that just changes in the archaeological record that are important and one of the things is i don't think in any great detail we've talked about shell heaps and so Many of the sites we're going to talk about today are shell heap sites. So that means that they have piles of soft shell clam or something called shell middens um, that are, are at them. And as the shell, which is shell that's uh, deposited after eating shellfish, when the shell starts to break down, it releases calcium carbonate into the soil. So what happens is, you know, the, the gardeners in the audience will know about Maine of the Maritimes acidic soils, the shell breaks down, calcium carbonate's released, soil becomes more basic. So this means that on the coast during this time period, as long as there's shell at these sites, we actually get pretty good preservation, especially of food remains. So of, of, of animal bones from what people were eating. So you were just saying, explaining what's on the coast. Mm -hmm. You were about to say what's happening on the interior. Yes. Um, and then when you're done that, I'm going to tell people where we are in time oh that's a good plan <laughs> sounds good they yeah. um that yeah sounds good that i because that's that's uh <laughs> where we are in time is kind of an important part of this i guess yeah they um so but what this means in part is that uh we've got significant differences in the archaeological record on the coast versus the interior where stuff isn't preserving very well and so figuring out these kinds of differences that might relate to, say, are there two distinct populations, one living on the coast, one living on the interior? What are the interactions between those groups? I mean, they clearly be related. You know, it's clearly be uh, long-term occupation, year-round occupation on the coast and the interior. But what the exact natures of those populations or what Dave Sanger called the two-population model are somewhat uh, difficult to figure out in part because of those preservation issues. And uh, Ken is now going to tell us where we are in time, which I realize I, I forgot to do earlier. <laughs> so, so we just to contextualize what the uh, Middle Maritime Woodland um, is, we we generally start at around twenty two hundred um, calibrated years before present, uh, and it sort of ends around thirteen hundred years ago. And there's some a little bit of nuance there. So, in the Lower Wallastog, for example, you start to see some changes, probably closer to fifteen hundred years ago, um, but we 
I think more and more, as we'll talk about probably later in this episode and certainly in the next episode, the middle to late woodland, middle to late maritime woodland transition um, almost is a thing in and of itself. And that is that sort of period between about um, sort of uh, uh, 1500 to 1300 years ago ish. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so 2200 years ago is kind of when we're, we're picking up. Um, the, um, Sometimes we step outside of time, and it's weird. You, you you can tell Ken is sort of uh he has to grab hold of the desk, and and that the the G forces become substantial. Uh, and uh, you see my cheeks rippling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please, Ken, it's a family podcast. <laughs> uh, the uh, so we've uh, we've talked a little bit about the kind of big picture. We've talked a little bit about the transition from the early woodland to the middle woodland in this region but i think one of the things that that we are the two kind of tensions i think that we're going to talk about a little bit here is that one of the key realizations of recent archaeological work in the in maine and the maritimes is that we have a lot more resolution on change within the woodland period so changes between three thousand years ago and european contacts we understand these much better than we used to and we've got a lot more nuance about culture change during that period. But the other thing that we're that Ken and I are gonna have a hard time doing when we try to discuss this with you is that there's becomes more site location redundancy. So a lot of the sites that we're actually going to talk about this fortnight are going to be the same ones we'll talk about in in 14 days because yeah. a lot of the important sites have both middle woodland and late woodland and even protohistoric components at them. Yeah, and in, and in some cases you'll recognize, particularly for the interior, when we talk about uh, the lower Wastog and places like the Miramichi River, um, that these sites are actually occupied occupied from probably the transitional archaic, but certainly by the early woodland through um, through to the post contact period. And, and so what you're seeing are people staying in particular places in the landscape for a longer period of time, um, and you're starting to see a little bit um, in places like New Brunswick of the kind of stratified sites like what uh, sort of characterize Maine prehistory, for example, right? Like, uh, although in, you know, in Maine, you have places like Brigham and Sherrill where you've got a record from sort of the middle archaic right through to contact um, in one sort of stratified deposit. But, um, but what we're seeing um, here is are certainly these landscapes are occupied, but we see a little bit more kind of um, shingling, chronological shingling in, in occupation of, of um, uh, sort of archaic and then woodland landscapes. And, and the, the listener will also want to take note too, that we're now operating in much smaller frames of time, right? So, um, when we talk about not knowing as much about certain time periods, you got to remember when we were, you know, our, our early maritime or mar early maritime archaic episode covered a period of, of what, 6,000 years, something like that. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Um, and we're now talking about, uh, uh, 900 years, right? So, so yeah. we do actually have, we're starting to have increasing chronological resolution. Um, and, and, uh, you know, going back to what, what Gabe said at the start is that, um, there had been this kind of interpretation that what we see at the start of the middle maritime woodland was essentially what the rest of the woodland was, right? Like, uh, the, you know, the notion of the, if I, if I'm not saying this incorrectly, I think this whole premise of the quadi tradition was that um, starting at about 2,200 years ago, you were starting, you were seeing um, undifferentiated cultural uh, material that spanned basically from that time period 
from sort of what were really detectable um, increase in ceramics, um, changes in, in projectile point morphology uh, in coastal sites in, in the Quadi region, um, right up until contact. And, and some of that was um, a function of the visibility of particular sites, um, but also the, as Gabe talked about, um, shell bearing information and, and how you can detect changes through time in these shell bearing sites, uh, which, which traditionally there was, um, I would say, a pessimism about the ability to tell time through these stratified deposits. Is that correct? Or that they yeah. weren't viewed as stratified deposits. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. And the, I mean, that's so we, a uh, couple uh, recently when we were at the CAA, uh, Dave Black won a Smith Wittenberg Award. And, you know, one of the things that came up in the nomination was the degree to which his contribution to understanding stratigraphic integrity within Shelman sites was important, not just in New Brunswick, but, you know, but it was important throughout the Northeast because there were these huge debates going on in the literature um, about whether or not you could uh, infer basically stratigraphic layers within shell heaps and whether or not stuff moved in shell heaps. And so uh, um, was it the, I think it was, you know, uh, Louis Brennan and working in New York, uh, David Sanger, and they were writing papers, things like uh, with titles like The Midden is the Message, a little, you know, Marshall McLuhan <laughs> reference there. And then um, Bruce Bork and Dina Dinkows had a big back and forth in the review of archaeology. Um, and then you, you had the sort of more, you know, I guess, optimistic voices in this in this debate, uh, Art Spies, and then, you know, in particular, I think David Black, who, uh, you know, really sort of showed that that you can, in fact, use these these visible strata in um, in shell heaps to figure out change through time. And that kind of fundamental realization became important for understanding all the transitions that we're going to talk about over the last few thousand years. There, there are shell heaps that are older than that um, in the in the region. So, you know, at places like Turner's farm, Turner Farm, um, where the shell heap, where the site goes back 5,500 years, and then you get shell heaps. And there's certainly I think around 4,000 years ago, isn't it? As early as, or is that? Yeah, so the oldest radiocarbon date at Turner Farm is, I think, 5,500. But the shell uh, starts, is the, after the that. shell's associated with the Susquehanna occupation, isn't that's it? That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, there's our, there's our, uh, uh, another main, uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, that's that's telephone booth shaped look. Yeah. Uh, your your bingo dabber is going to be dry by the time this episode's over. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, What's uh, it called when the whole sheet is full? Is that? Oh, I don't know. It's um. We should. I was just thinking we should also try to get this. We should try to get on uh, an advertisement on Radio Bingo. That you know the the like rural New Brunswick. Thing. What? Have you, have you never? Uh, a mutual friend of ours was was telling me about. Uh, radio bingo it's apparently they it's it's bingo on the radio i guess oh so I, I didn't know this yeah so i mean it's like you could sit in a smoke-filled bingo parlor but instead you sit at home and so i i guess it's like the anti-social version of bingo i, I don't really i don't entirely understand it but i could i i'm told <laughs> it's very popular on the miramichi oh there you go <laughs> yeah but what i mean what isn't popular on the miramichi exactly um it's the ohio of new brunswick um, and, and, um, so, okay, so, so we've, 
well, we've, we've really done a good job here. We've, we've instead of, do you remember how we were like talking? We we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to just take the Woodland period in really narrow chunks. So instead, we've just been pushing this back further. And listener, we'd like to talk to you about the nature of time. <laughs> time gets shorter as it gets closer. <laughs> time is bigger in the past. Um, so, uh, so everything's under control. Don't worry. We're highly trained podcast professionals and public educators. Um, but so the, the point is that we we thought we had a difficult time figuring out stratigraphic layers in coastal sites. And it turns out you can do it, which is great. And so as a result, we're going to talk about changes within this, this last period. I think you could even, since we've broadened time, we might as well broaden space again. And But part of what we've talked about when we're talking about the early woodland was that we understand this in some sense, the woodland period, as... I think in two, I think there's kind of two narratives that we understand. One is that it's very similar to the Neolithic in the old world. So this idea that you've got this kind of suite of stuff, right? People settling down, people starting to grow crops, forms of domestication. Um, and then also in North America, this understanding that this is kind of the time period that we understand from European accounts, basically, that this is the sort of time period that Europeans encounter. And but so as a result, the narrative of this period was very, very smushed together, where you understood the whole thing in terms of stuff that actually didn't happen all at the same time. Is that fair, Ken? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And 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 I think we'll probably want to to, to before we kind of leap into um, other middle maritime woodland, we'll also probably maybe do a little bit of uh, a sort of a rehash on hunter-gatherer theory and sort of thinking about um, how hunter-gatherers live on the landscape and how we have come to define how they sort of move around the landscape, right? And so the, uh, you know, the big uh, narrative about hunter-gatherers is, is sort of mobility and settlement. And so how, where, like what kinds of houses and, and places do they live and what kind of site information, like uh, the, the, what is the static our, uh, manifestation of oh, what is it of dynamic cultural activity isn't that the line or something like that yeah I, I can't some, remember there's some but... Binfordian anyway so Lewis Binford who's sort of a, a, a kind of the the key figure in this sort of hunter-gatherer um, spectrum and so we talked about this I think early on in the show about how we define hunter-gatherers um, on a spectrum from foragers so highly mobile um, people who move around the landscape uh, to collectors who are uh, more settled um, tend to stay in, in one location for longer periods of time. Um, we've, we've, the listener can't tell we've continued. It's, it's always a good sign when after saying that we're going to we're going to try to stop talking about time. And then Ken says, let's talk a little bit about hunter gatherer theory. You know, so so <laughs> let's go. <laughs> let's start so, at 200,000 years ago. Uh, with, yeah. So, with so anatomically and cognitively modern humans. I'm not sure how I chopped this up, but Gabe raised a point that uh, basically up until uh, now we've seen um, sort of characteristically residentially mobile populations and that groups are sort of staying in, moving around the landscape and moving their houses at different times of the year, sort of um, exploiting different um, ecological niches and different resources at different times of the year, moving around the landscape. And, and so we see a, con a continuation of that into the middle woodland, um, but toward the end of the middle woodland, what we're starting to see um, is a change uh, in that behavior. And, and some of what we're going to talk about today in the context of the Middle Woodland maybe kind of sets the stage for 
why why that is. Um, uh, maybe it's a reaction to something. And so um, I, th I think that we're um, we have opened the show uh, with a couple quotes from Dave Black uh, at the Lunar Rogue last week um, and or a couple weeks ago, I guess. Yeah. Um, and in compliment to that, uh, Dave talks about how he and Sue Blair um, kind of had a conversation about um, what's going on in the Middle Woodland and how, you know, there was this notion that Middle Woodland kind of represented sort of the normal, right? Like this is what people are doing. Whereas um, what, what they've talked about, what Dave talks about and what Sue has talked about is that maybe the Middle Woodland is actually a little bit different in that um, there's a quote here from, from Sue's thesis appears to be remarkably remarkable for its localized character, its internal consistency, and the apparent disengagement of regional groups from developments in the broader Northeast. And I think that that is, um, we'll kind of probably come back to this a number of times today and, and sort of what characterizes uh, the middle woodland as being a little bit different than what we were seeing in the early woodland. And certainly um, what we'll see um, in the years following uh, sort of 1500 to 1300 years ago. So that's right. Yeah. So we've talked about uh, shell deposits um and shell bearing sites and i think that it's probably um we're gonna we're gonna start by talking about somewhere not in new brunswick <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we're gonna talk about um certainly probably one of gabe's favorite spots and and one of mine after being down there for um a couple field seasons uh on gabe's masters and phd research uh on the south shore of nova scotia uh in a place a very beautiful place called port jolly harbor um, and so uh, maybe we'll, we'll bring in uh, Matt Betts's thoughts on what's going on uh, with shell bearing sites there. Yeah, so the, um, and we'll, we'll link to this book in the show notes. This is kind of an important um, book called Place Making the Pretty Harbor. Um, Ken and I both have chapters in it, which is fun. Um, but it's uh, edited by Matt Betts, good friend and colleague at Canadian Museum of History. And uh, what Matt was doing out there was there's Port Jolly's on the south shore of Nova Scotia, um, which is a beautiful place. It's got uh, ticks the size of small helicopters, which is which is not great. Yeah, but other than that, it's lovely. And they're, they're also uh, like they're they're so prolific there that they're it is the most ca like I've never had a tick removed more casually than the the cook at our at the Harrison Lewis Center. Uh, barely breaking a stride as she's chopping up tomatoes fiercely, looks over, uh, flicks a tick off of my shin when I realized I had one there, washes her hands and goes right back to chopping tomatoes. Like, it was like the knife didn't even stop moving and, uh, and she had already removed the tick from my shin. That's great. Yeah, she, she, um, she just, she could do it with the knife too, I think, but she didn't want to alarm <laughs> you, you know, the, the, the quick, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so what, what, what Matt did, and this is, this is kind of, you know, it's it's like a, I mean, the project's incredibly good, multidisciplinary, um, tons of, of of good sites. And, and basically a bunch of sites have been reported from Port Jolly, um, Port Jolly Harbor. And they basically in the middle woodland is when the harbor itself formed. So the, the har the becomes the kind of harbor as we understand it now. And then almost immediately, um, ancestral Mi'kmaq people start living there. And, but one of Matt's insights was that there were essentially two kinds of coastal sites there. And the first kind of site were these deep processing middens um, or shell heaps. 
lots of soft shell clam and animal bones, um, lots of charcoal, and but very little in the way of features. And then there was a second kind of site that tended to be located just a little bit inland from these that were associated with house floors, which are the basically the stains on the ground left by wigwams in the past, so small oval stains. Ken and I spent a long time in one at Port Charlie Harbor, actually. Uh, and uh, and then these would have small middens around them, so sort of your kitchen middens. There's an unpronounceable Danish word with a lot of J's and M's and K's and stuff that that refers to those kinds of middens. And so this is this is kind of one. So what you think about this kind of structure of the archaeological record, then you can start to say, okay, well, what's what's going on? And these these deep processing middens, Matt thinks. Um, may have to do, um, in some cases, with aggregation. So families coming together, processing shells, and then actually probably smoking and storing some of the uh, meat from these shellfish, right? Which is interesting because kind of your classic highly residentially mobile hunter-gatherers are implied by, if this is correct, by to be doing some things that we don't usually associate with hunter-gatherers. So, and those things are, you know, you're around... We have storage, right? It's just the uh, they they call them hunter gatherers, not hunter storers. Um, so uh, so so that's sort of interesting. It's what's going on. And the other thing that we learned about the middle woodland from these sites uh, in Port Jolly were the only uh, pre-contact sweat houses from the region. So um, sweat houses are what they sound like, right? But there's a bunch of different kinds in the ethno-historic literature, different kinds of sauna-adjacent things. And the ones, the one rather in Port Jolly was a sort of deep hole. It's probably a, a, a men's space from the ethno-historic record. And there were all sorts of reasons that people used sweat houses. So they could be a kind of preventative medicine. They could be, uh, so you, you sort of go in just to kind of, you know, keep the system, keep the system going. Um, or you could also use them to treat various kinds of ailments. People probably um, took uh, certain kinds of drugs while they were in them. And you could also use them as a kind of sort of shamanism, right? Which is basically, uh, I wish I could remember who said this, but but someone described shamanism as kind of religious first aid, right? It's like one of the things that you you want to do if if you're kind of out of whack with the way things should be going, uh, which is important in hunter-gatherer religious or cosmological systems. Yeah, and we uh, talked about how some of these like uh, overt, um, uh, you know, burial ceremonialism and that sort of thing might be ways people are negotiating their worlds and sort of understanding change in their landscape and, and you know, bringing order to their worlds through um, what we see in material culture. And, and, and certainly sweat, sweat lodges and sweat houses might be one of these places where this sort of space is important. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Um, one of the other big insights of this work, and, and so we should say that these sites are somewhat different than the ones in New Brunswick, like the Middle Woodland sites that like Dave Black worked at in the Quadi region, or I worked at in the main Quadi region, um, aren't, aren't spatially arranged like this. They tend to be all mushed together a little bit more, where you've got the living features and the shell heaps uh, interdigitated. The listener can't see, but I made the I made the interdigitated finger gesture, uh, which I, which I know I know everyone appreciates. Um, and uh, and but one of the things is that that 
people are, are have tended to be really dismissive about the importance of shellfish. Um, Ken, do you, do you like eating shellfish? I love shellfish. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, I, I, so- I discovered actually the beauty of shellfish actually when, when you and, uh, and Nadine were living in Biddeford. Oh, um, yeah. And we, we went down to that uh, the market in Portland and we got all the... Oh, right. We got the oysters from each different bay along yeah. the main coast and we did like a terroir uh, tasting. And yeah. I, I didn't realize that like the same species could have such a remarkably different flavor and character um and man those demariscados though they're the yeah these knees that's funny i i yeah that was that was a good day we should do that again we should um we should uh we should do a live uh you know live from a seafood restaurant uh so it might be a little uh it's possible that that's not what the listener wants to hear is us slurping oysters while we... Uh, <laughs> we'll while mute we, when we slurp, but... We'll mute, but yeah, uh, mute when we slurp. The would also, there's a great colloquialism that we got out of there, though. And that's that in New Brunswick, <laughs> uh, the listeners will recognize when I say a canner lobster, you can probably visualize sort of this, like, small, sort of pan and a quarter, very tasty lobsters. Actually, I really like canners, but I don't think actually they sell them any. I think they're... You're not allowed to catch can, uh, canners in New Brunswick. I don't know. Anyway, the uh, the uh, fishmonger uh, was uh, that that was at the counter. Um, when I asked her to bag up, I think it was like three canner lobsters. She had no idea what I was talking about, and I said, "Oh, the small ones, you know, like pan and a quarter." And she goes, "Oh, you're talking about chicken lobsters." <laughs> <laughs> and then she 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 beautifully bagged everything up as we're picking out oysters, and then called me like called my number, and I went over to pick them up, and she hands me the bag, and she goes, "He is your canners." <laughs> <laughs> the um the listener uh will will appreciate you know maybe the listener doesn't know ken as well as i do but the but being in a situation in ken with ken in which we're communicating with someone who clearly has no idea what we're talking about so ken just speaks with increasing confidence until they come along uh, with, i've even seen him do this in french actually and uh you know looking for a bagel shop in french and uh so no the uh yeah it's, it's the same experience whether you're in a starbucks a shellfish shop whatever you know <laughs> at the metro in montreal um so <laughs> but <laughs> the uh <laughs> but it turns out shellfish are really important uh, to the diet in the middle of one. they're kind of not a last resort food and and do you remember i'm not really sure why people were so dismissive of shellfish as a food source i suspect part of it might be that in the ethnographic accounts they're often collected by women and children um they seem to be yeah Individually, it, they're pretty small. But wasn't it um, like Carson didn't um, didn't Sanger like recover a ton of terrestrial bone, and so it didn't seem like it was possible. Like I, maybe it was just sort of the thinking that like if terrestrial resources are available, like the the meat weight of a shellfish would be far outclassed by like a caribou, for example, right? Like yeah, you know that you spend half a day hunting for caribou and you get meat for weeks uh, versus you know go out with your whatever what what do you think a clam rake looked like like you know this is what was the clamming technology this is a great question and i don't know um the uh like i like i would so one of the things that we talked about in this port jolly volume so i i i co-wrote the lithics chapter and, and i didn't have a chance to look at the lithics themselves um but uh they had had some sort of cursory 
So analysis. Ken did look at the I, pictures, though, listener. He didn't just make I, this I, up. I love yeah. the pictures, <laughs> and I had uh, very detailed databases that were prepared by a, a student who was working with, with Matt. And one of the patterns that emerged was that um, there's an increasing, and, and this is elsewhere in the Maritimes, is that you get an increase in small scraping tools um, proliferating throughout the middle and late maritime woodland. And some of that may be, for example, in coastal sites associated with like processing shellfish, because you don't need an elaborate tool to scrape, you know, a clam out of a shell basically. Right. But you do need a sharp edge. And when you see all of these small, uh, lithic flakes, so like the, the small byproducts of making a stone tool that are either sharpened on one edge or show um, wear. So when you look at them under a microscope and they show that sort of characteristic chipping and, and wear or polish, um, that they're probably, they're what we would call a utilized flake or a retouched flake. Those would be ideal for processing these shellfish, but it's like, we don't really see anything like you don't see, um, like groundstone objects or, or tools that would have been used. So it's like, maybe they were like, like sticks or something, like something perishable that yeah. I guess you wouldn't, that wouldn't show up. Yeah, but it is well, I've, I've always said that Ken's lithic chapter really shucks. So, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I don't know. I mean, but I, I think you're raising this point, right? That there's so much we just don't really know. Like, we don't know that much about fishing technology either, really, you know? No, like the, the amount of fish versus the, you know, amount of stuff we would think of for catching fish is, is out of whack, you know? Yeah. I mean, just and, while and we're so talking about stuff we don't know, we don't really even know what people on the interior were eating. Right. I mean, we can eat. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. They may yeah. have been eating shellfish, but we don't see it, for example. Right. Like, uh, yeah, they're keeping the shell somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so so Gabe, uh, alongside these deep processing middens, what's interesting, too, is the site locations. And they have to do with, um, lo and behold, proximity to shellfish. Yeah. So a um, bunch of people, Kellogg, uh, Dave Black, Matt Betts made the site locational models. And so what a site locational model is, is it's uh, a model imposed by archeologists to try to figure out where people tended to put their sites, right? And so, what, yeah, one of the keys was that because shellfish were so crucial to the diet, you know, maybe greater than 90% of the diet at places like Indian Town Island in Maine, greater than 80% of the diet at the Kidder Point site in Maine, maybe 35 to 95% of the diet at various quaddy region sites, uh, in New Brunswick, people are actually putting their sites near highly productive clam flats. So places where you could, would be able to get lots of softshell clam and also other aspects of sites that indicate uh, real affiliation to just using watercraft on the coast. So good places to land a canoe, it's key in this uh, understanding. Yeah, and, and also... And in the interior too, you get locations um, at like would have been great locations for fish runs, for um, hunting waterfowl. Um, so we'll talk about a couple sites in the like a series of sites in the Grand Lake Meadows region and in the Lower Wallastook, which are you know this is as Gabe and I learned one year um, duck hunting territory um, <laughs> and uh, probably had been for several millennia. So yeah, the. Uh... I also apologize to the listener. There's somebody mowing their lawn across the street from me. So if you hear an odd humming in the background, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm going to try to mute and limit the uh, the background noise here. But uh, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I'm not sort of uh, doing a deep throaty hum in the background. Uh, that 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 is indeed a, an, uh, an ambient sound. Ken's just aspirating his yeses constantly. It's it's a. Uh... <laughs> 
um so so and people tend to be on these these you know roughly south facing uh pieces of shoreline and so one of the things reason this pieces of information is useful is if you're actually out looking if you're an archaeologist trying to find sites you can use these models i mean you want to be careful and test off the model every once in a while to make sure you're not just you know it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you only look where you think sites are going to be and then you're like oh look my model was fantastic I only found sites where I thought they would be. You need to sample the quadrat. Ex yeah, exactly. It's been a long time since I've thought about quadrats, Ken. Yep. Um, I'm not even sure I remember what a quadrat is. I, I don't know if it's actually got a, uh, if there's like a physical size that's supposed to be, but I think it's basically just supposed to be when you're doing probabilistic testing of a certain area, you you break up um, a landscape. You, you use like Cartesian planes to sort of lay over a landscape and you say like each of these boxes is a certain size and that you call those quadrats so yeah. you know it could be like a five by five kilometer area or you know 500 meter by 500 meter area um and yeah in like the your... imperial system that's an octorat that we use it's got a <laughs> even more sides <laughs> what, was the, what was the french measure the arpent that, uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a high-end cigarette lighter, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, <laughs> and we're back with the new. <laughs> uh, but uh, so we've got these these site locational models. You know, people are are putting their their living areas on on these ones. Um, in the Quadi region, uh, we've done, and by we I mean Dave Black. You know, in the battle days before. You know, like try to explain to UNB now that I'm going to go take students in a boat and do island survey. It would be, uh, it would be the 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 look in in the dean's eyes, uh, at, or the more likely the insurance actuary's eyes when I explained what I was going to do in a boat with a bunch of twenty year olds. Would yeah, be. I, I I think Sue tells the story about them basically disappearing into the fog one day, and uh, you know they're puddling around in a small outboard. Uh, boat and uh, not really sure which like pointed the the boat in a direction that they thought was mainland. <laughs> yeah, they uh, no. It seems like it'd be pretty uh, pretty hard to uh, to do. I mean the and, and then once you're out there, you're just out there, you know, for a long time. It is absolutely beautiful boating around in there, though. That is yeah. like a, a you know touring around on those islands. That, uh, I, I've been lucky to go. Out at least once with a, a, a friend of ours and, and uh, kind of see these places up close and you can totally see why the Quadi became such an attractive place to live too. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, and, and there's actually, we should mention there's, there are other reasons in New Brunswick too that, that, that the Quadi region is was such a fantastic place to live. And one of those things is coastal upwelling that's driving nutrients hot, basically driving nutrients up in the Quadi region. So it's a really ecologically rich area to live in. So, yeah. you know, you've got shellfish, but you've also got the other kinds of food that people are eating there. You know, so on the coast, you get, you know, eels, ducks, and geese, and, you know, but you also still have your terrestrial resources too, you know, your cervids. Um, and it, and it's also mammals. too why the lower Velostog and the Miramichi River, for example, are, are were such great locations for people to live because they were equally, so they're what are called estuaries. And so they are, um, uh, many of the sites uh, that cluster in around like Metapanagiak, for example, or in the lower Wolostog and around the Grand Lake Meadows are within um, the tidal range or the tidal amplitude for the Wolostog River or the Miramichi River. And therefore, as a result, um, you have sort of the best of both worlds. You've got 
um, freshwater species, you've got some uh, anadromous fish species, so fish that are kind of moving up and down the river, like for example salmon or sturgeon. Um, and then you have a number of other, you've got migratory birds coming through um, both of these areas, um, and, and then you have uplands uh, with, with abundant terrestrial resources. Um, and because of the sort of um, estuary, you get different plant life too. So you get uh, a number of unique biotic communities that would produce um, plants that are both edible um, and also medicinal. Um, and so these are sort of like hotbeds for uh, both coastal areas and interior estuarine areas are sort of ideal locations to, um, to, to kind of make as a base of operations. Absolutely. And, and we indicated, and I guess we should indicate in slightly more detail here that we, people are, are living on the coast year round uh, during the woodland period. And so the inferring hunter-gatherers seasonality is difficult. <laughs> and I thought you just cut open the contrafor, isn't that the... Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the listener can't see, but but I, as I said, hunter gatherer seasonality. I actually, I, I am now looking at a half finished bottle of Cuvassier. <laughs> this is kind of scarring experience, and um, so you basically, because you you, the the easiest way to do this, right? And and maybe and what might just be the best way to do this is you say, okay, in the midden, in the shell midden, there's uh, particular kinds of animals that I know are are most available at particular times of year. So you then. So if you've got tomcod in your midden, you say, okay, it's probably a cold season habitation rather than a warm season one, because that's when you would collect tomcod or fish tomcod, I guess would be a better phrase. There are other ways that you can try to figure out seasonality. So you can um, do stable isotope analyses on various things. Um, and if the listener would like to know what stable isotopes are, I would encourage them to Google it. <laughs> so you better not send this my way. I can't, I can't answer that question. Ken, would you like to tell us about strontium today? Uh, <laughs> and uh, Ken just threw himself under a lawnmower, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, um, but you can, and you can use, I mean, in particular, you use oxygen isotopes to, what you're actually doing is you're inferring past water temperature, which, and then you can use the water temperature to estimate what, seasonality was but the astute listener will already identify that there's a problem with that which is that in the spring and the fall you're likely to have very similar water temperatures so that, so then you're back to trying to nuance this by adding information from uh your uh your season of capture anyway on these animals but a bunch of accumulated oh and you can section you can section deer teeth you know that are available at particular times of the year uh, that will look differently at different times of the year. So you can use all these data, right? And basically all of these accumulated data have come together. We're still obviously working on these problems just to make clear that people are living along the coast year round. That doesn't mean they're living at one site necessarily, although they certainly at places like Port Jolly appear to be at one site for long periods of time. Yeah. But they're moving around the coast. And in particular in the Quadi region, they're moving between islands and the... Uh, the main coast land. of the mainland yeah 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 so and on the interior um you just uh see a site and you say well they can't have lived here between you know april and mid-june because it's underwater uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then you hope that you recover stuff like ceramic vessels for example where 
Um, there was a study done by uh, uh, Vincent Bourgeois and a group of uh, uh, Dave Black and, and Sue Blair and a couple other folks from um, our archaeological services uh, where they collected residues from the interiors of ceramic vessels, um, primarily middle woodland pots. Uh, there are a couple like late woodland pots in there. Um, and they did this isotopic analysis, which seemed to indicate that <clears throat> groups were consuming uh, freshwater and anadromous fish um, and migratory birds, which would suggest that at least these vessels are probably summer um, sites. Um, but what we know is that groups were probably living in the interior round, and they may have been moving into places like the Grand Lake Meadows region, maybe in the summer, because it's a very ecologically rich area. Um, in the summer, but uh, as we know, as, as the listener who is from New Brunswick knows, um, the Wolostog has a, has a spring freshet, um, and so there are significant areas along the river um, uh, that, uh, that flood during the spring, um, and so you're probably not living there for at least a, pro a couple months, uh, but you're probably coming in as soon as those, you know, those fiddleheads pop up and, and the water recedes, and, and living there probably well into the fall, and if not, maybe throughout the winter, but um, the other thing that we use outside of, of faunal remains to uh, to kind of understand where people were living and when uh, is the density of artifacts that you might recover in a particular uh, feature context. So if, for example, you're excavating something that you suspect is a household, you would, by, by sort of proxy, un, uh, understand um, a, a greater concentration of things inside a house as probably evidence of groups being in, inside more frequently or for longer periods of time, in which case you can probably interpret that as being sort of a winter occupation. And, and you know, in Port Charlie, there's this excellent example from ALDF 24, um, uh, where, we, you know, there's an incredibly dense concentration of artifacts inside um, at least one of the house floors, because there's sort of several op occupations there. Um, and uh, but you don't, sometimes you don't see that sort of concentration on sites in the interior, which suggests that people were maybe moving around a little bit more um, and maybe not uh, where, I, I can't think of off the top of my head, uh, a particular location on the interior where you'd say, oh yeah, this is probably like an overwintering campsite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, one of the problems on the interior too, is just that the, the features in general are poorly defined. I mean, so we don't really have good evidence for house features on the interior, like, we, like we do on the coast. Yeah, yeah. And so, so with the listener, so when we're talking about like the, the visibility of features or the distinctiveness of features, we're actually talking about like, you know, uh, how, how easy they are to see. And so um, the soils, for example, in the interior, uh, you don't have the kind of contrasts, for example, in features that you might have uh, on the coast. You know, uh, at, at GEMSEG, I think they kind of famously talk about how you closed your eyes and you sort of felt with your trowel to sort of detect um, uh, textural differences in um, what would probably be the edges of features. Um, you know, one of the sites that I looked at for my master's, for example, there was a hearth feature that we had some charcoal concentrations, but was actually very hard to see in the field. Like these things are not easy to see. Whereas the house floor that Gabe mentioned that we spent a lot of time on uh, or in, uh, uh, in um, Port Jolly, you could stand up on this glacial erratic right beside it and you could see visibly that there was a difference between what was inside the house, which was a lot of crushed shell um, and very black soil, and what was outside the house, which was kind of like, you know, gray, gray to brown soil and, and very high contrast to this point that like, you could actually, we, I think uh, you, you and Matt laid down a string, essentially, and, and uh, found the outside of the house, and then were able to find secondary features like 
the, the rocks that were clustered around where the poles for your wigwam would be placed. And, and that stuff is all highly visible, um, but you don't see that as much on the interior. So it's a little bit difficult, more difficult to identify these types of features. Yeah. And so uh, that means that, that when we were, our guilds are trying to figure out I mean, we, this is a theme we've just kept we keep returning to, right? Is the relationship between the coast? Um, oh, the Amazon oh. man just stopped by. Oh wow, yeah. The uh, Ken is um, Ken's house is is a is the the hub of activity in Lethbridge, Alberta today. It's uh, a tumbleweed just rolled through his living room, uh, and uh, he's uh, you, the listener can't see this, but in addition to wearing um, to wearing a shirt that's traveling through time, he's uh, he's got. Uh, how many gallons is that hat, Ken? Or maybe liters, liters for the Canadian audience. I think uh, I think the standard is uh, uh, it would be well. What's a? Uh, it'd be what forty-two liters or something like that. I think it must be a forty-two liter hat. Yeah. Yeah. Are you wearing spurs? I can't tell. Or just does, does Carolyn make you take those off before you come in the house? No, it would scratch up the floor. Yeah. So. But, but I have uh, my buckle on. It's actually it's such a large buckle. I'm actually having trouble sitting down. Um, it's pinching my belly button, but uh, but you know it shows. Um, it shows my uh, uh, my Albertaness. Yeah, I mean it, it's probably pretty comfortable though, since your office chair is a saddle. So. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, <laughs> and um, we sh- I'm just thinking we should get APA and be belt buckles. That should be the next swag. That would be good. I mean, we could get New Brunswick Archaeology podcast buckles too. That's a great idea. Um, we, we also should come up with a slogan. Um, so APAB has an excellent slogan. Yeah. And uh, um, I don't know if we can. Are we allowed say to say it. it on a family podcast? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to get the E rating, uh, you know, when Apple reviews this episode. But if we say it slowly, will you be able to bleep it out and then we won't get in trouble? So if I go like, ah, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so that the slogan is experts, not. Right. Okay. I would say I wasn't sure if we were allowed to say that. Well, we just did. I, I bet you there's a bleep function that I can do here. Yeah, no, I, I bet you're right. Um, and and the but the, the, that's like that that was your line, right? You were describing uh, Darcy Dignam's uh, excellent performance on the CBC, I think, right? I don't know. Was that my line or was that Darcy's line? Uh, I can't remember. All I know is it wasn't mine, and I wished it had been. <laughs> So once I hit that point of resentment, you know, I, I just didn't care about somebody else. Um, but no, yeah, and, and experts not assholes actually is the attitude, the APNB. They're not paying extra for this spot, but that's uh, that's the the attitude. It's sort of the happy warrior uh, thing that we're going for, you know, where, um, where, you know, the we try, uh, we try to take the high road and and uh, and you know do things for the better of the the betterment of the discipline in the process. Yeah. Yeah, no, the astute, the astute listener will, will notice that we've never taken a subtle dig at anyone via an inside joke on this podcast. And and we just simply wouldn't. I mean, that's beneath all of our dignity. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. The, uh, we respect the listener. We respect the discipline. Um, we, we, you know, I'm reminded, I, whenever I think about what to do, I'm reminded by this, you know, gigantic bust of Caesar we have parked in here about what the appropriate appropriate behavior is. I, I gotta, I'll have to talk to Manu about getting getting those printed out. Uh, yeah, I, the... that'd be great. Um, so um, also, uh, also listener, if, um, uh, if other suggestions about busts you think we should install here at the uh, at the NB ArcPod studio, we're, we're happy to entertain those. You, you know the you know the email address. And um, 
you know, we're doing a really good job here. Dave Black was actually not confident that we could do the Middle Woodland in in less than three episodes, and uh, <laughs> it's a good thing you have somewhere to go this afternoon. <laughs> the uh, that's right. Um... Uh, so. Uh, year-round occupation on the coast, probably year-round occupation on the interior, but less visible. Yeah. Um, and so what are, what are people making? So we talked about that we don't know what a, what a clam fork yeah. is uh, in the pre-contact world, but, uh, uh, and we talked a little bit about decoration on ceramics, but yep. um, what really characterizes the Middle Woodland is actually the proliferation of ceramics, right? So yeah. um, uh, it's, it's kind of the uh, CP, what? two, three, and four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our middle woodland. Um, and this, uh, uh, but I, I think probably CP3 is sort of the hallmark of, of uh, middle woodland ceramics because that's kind of pseudoscallop and, and dentate and all that. Yeah, kind of I mean. Together and, um, and, and you certainly, when you recover ceramics in an archeological context, um, uh, the vast majority of those ceramics are coming from middle woodland contexts. That's right, yeah. Um, so, like, uh, at Sip Bay, where uh, we worked last season, we were getting, you know, essentially... This is yet another non-inmate oh, yeah, example. <laughs> yeah, well, the listener doesn't know. I haven't, I haven't dug a test pit in uh, in New Brunswick in a decade, actually. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> this is, like, the... You should let that slip. What's that? Uh, we, you, would, you shouldn't let that slip. That's, uh, you know... No, no, it's more effective. It makes this, like, sports talk radio. Where it's like you know the, the the guys never actually played baseball or hockey or whatever, but they they're happy Gabe's to talk got, about. Gabe's uh, got Gabe had Tommy John surgery back in back ten years ago, and and yeah. uh, hasn't been able to move his trowel in uh, New Brunswick since. Exactly. Yeah, I used to you know used to be good for twenty five test pits a day before uh, before the uh, <laughs> the ligaments went. <laughs> um, but well, it's, but I but I mean, if you look at collections from New Brunswick, so that counts. Exactly. We looked at a collection recently together, and that you know, I renewed my my uh, my New Brunswick cred. Um. Well, we're still on topic, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, so we need we so need talk about our, ceramics at Sip, Sip Bay. Yeah. So you know, but that in in and so you get basically like we even at Sip had essentially whole pot drops where we've got these dentate and pseudoscalp shell forms. As if you basically just drop the pot there. I mean, and that's kind of unique. But the abundance of ceramics and the ceramics are are bigger. They typically get bigger shards. You get more of them in the archaeological record, and that's that's true at other middle woodland sites. Um, and the pots themselves are general are generally larger, are they not? Like they're not. I don't think anything is as big as vinette pots, but. Um, oh, they're they're bigger than the vinette one pots. Yeah. Oh, they are. Okay. They are. Yeah. I yeah. Had, yeah I had typically that kind of mixed up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. that's that's my understanding. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, you know, in New Brunswick, that's based on the, you know, six sherds of Annette One Pottery or something, right? They, we, uh, may have, we may have found more, though. That's, uh, this, that's this right. That we were, that collection that we were looking at. That's um, right. And uh, so, and, and the sort of in situ sort of um, feature of, of all these ceramic sherds in one spot, um, you do find that in the interior as well. So the meadow site, which we'll talk about here in a moment, had had particular features that look to be sort of entire pots kind of located in one area. Um, you know, uh, it's not super common practice uh, anymore, but uh, one of the things that I thought was the, probably one of the coolest aspects of a field school that I got to do um, 
these were not middle woodland pots. These were pots from a mine site, basically, in Belize. But <laughs> we got to do a ceramic reconstruction. And, and um, in lithics, you know, kind of the coolest thing you can do is refit an artifact back together. Um, but ceramic reconstruction is actually um, sort of the funnest puzzle you'll ever do. Um, and, uh, and so uh, when you find these sort of um, broken pots all in one spot, you're actually in some case, you can sort of refit them into and rebuild this pot to actually see the shape and size of it. Um, but you can also, with these small fragments of the pottery vessels, which are sherds, um, uh, these are the broken fragments of a pottery vessel, um, you can look at the contour of these particular sherds, you can look at the decoration on the outside of them and on the inside of them. Um, you can look at the collar and rim pieces, so the sort of the top of the pot is the rim, the collar is the part that sort of pinches in and then before flaring out into the body. Um, and you can look at all these attributes and, and we've talked about the ceramic period, we've sort of introduced this concept. Um, but by looking at these decorations and looking at these designs, looking at the temper, so the, the material that actually goes into the making the pot itself, um, we can actually kind of distinguish very easily um, within uh, smaller time frames than just the middle maritime woodland. We can actually distinguish within the middle maritime woodland um, or, or estimate how old those particular sites are. And that's sort of, um, when you find ceramics on any archeological site in the Maritimes, um, because we have this, um, uh, the, the Peterson and Sanger ceramic sequence, which has been sort of, you know, refined by Vincent uh, 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 Bourgeois, as well as Cora Woolsey, um, sort of some regionalism to it. Um, we can actually uh, sort of winnow down um, whether it was an earlier Middle Maritime Woodland site or a later Middle Maritime Woodland site, which is, which is a great, um, is very helpful for us to understand sort of what's going on at particular uh, moments of time and, and, you know, at the sort of century scale as opposed to millennial scale. That's great. Yeah. And so um, we should talk about the lithics a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and, and so... So the last note that we had, just to uh, talk, uh, oh, we talked about pseudoscallop, didn't we? PSS already. We did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, list, the list, we really like using that abbreviation pseudoscallop because there's nothing quite like using a letter that sounds that at least sounds different than the than the one. You know, it's it's uh, the uh, unfortunately there are no pterodactyl motifs. You know, we could really get confused. My my daughter, uh, uh, they call all these. Uh, they call them sneaky letters. So that would be. A but that's spelled P S N E. Yeah. <laughs> so that'd be a sneaky P on pseudo. Oh, I bet. Um, so uh, along with ceramic motifs being kind of similar to other places in the Northeast, um, we also have um, uh, there. There are very few sort of characteristic uh, middle woodland. Um, sort of diagnostic points. Um, so well, we had these side notch points in the early woodland and, and some other forms. Um, what we do see though are things like what's called a Jack's Reef point. Um, Jack's Reef. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, these are... That joke well, was funny to exactly two of our listeners, Kat. Yeah, the, yeah, the exactly. of it, yeah. Um, uh, another ESAP reference right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's two bingo slots in one in one phrase. Uh, yeah. Um, We're gonna have to get Wally in the in the van to Ocean City to on the on the trip to ESAP next year, so that so that he can, you know, understand have even more of these ESAP references. That maybe the whole <laughs> the whole show is an ESAP reference, and exactly. Wally will have to go to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we should do a we should we should have done a like a uh, a pod shot from inside the truck. I guess you were driving, so next time we're going to have to have a driver. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
the problem the problem with trying to do that uh, while I'm not driving is that I'm likely to be vomiting based on on my my profound motion sickness in even the gentlest of traveling scenarios. But yeah, we could you know we, we could, could do it on a train. I guess we could try to find a train. Train would be fine. Yeah, I could do yeah. train. Um, but we we could get one of those big boom. You know, like we were talking about one of those boom mics. You know, where it's on the arm or whatever. And yeah. we could just pass them, like rotate the mic around, um, yeah. or we could do it like a 1950s mono folk folk or country music recording, where it's just there's just one mic hanging from the middle of the van, and we're we're all around it, um, uh, you know, singing um, singing the beautiful harmonies that are New Brunswick archaeology, and you know the harmonious nature of of this, and then uh, just just how well how well all of the many voices working in this region just come together to produce clear archaeological narratives. That's that's that is beautiful. We yeah, did try it? that though in a bar and it did not work very well. <laughs> that's true. Um yeah, listener, uh we 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 know that last <laughs> we tried very hard and by we I mean Ken tried very hard to make that sound good. And um we've learned some lessons that we might need more microphones. Um we might need to get those like sports caster microphones, you know, with like the big the headset headphones and the and the 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 mic that goes in front. That actually wouldn't uh, be a bad idea. Yeah, I don't think that's a terrible idea. Um, if if you're a sponsor. Like, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so Jack's Reef. <laughs> uh, so these are uh, kind of broad squat um, uh, points. These are, uh, they tend to be in two different kinds of forms. So there's these pentagonal points, which are um, kind of unstemmed, uh, pentagonal in shape and are probably preforms to the Jack's Reef corner notch point, which is again, sort of a broad triangular shape with corner notching. Um, you see these um, sort of in decreasing frequency the further north you go, but um, there's even, for example, uh, uh, Washtenaw Church, Jack's Reef point from, um, from Queenstown, New Brunswick. So just across cool. from Washtenaw Lake, which is really neat. Um, but you do get um, kind of a characteristic uh, uh, point type in sort of the eastern part of the province um, and into places like Nova Scotia and in PEI where you what's called a bipoint. And so these are projectile points that are or bifaces that are made. Um, uh, we talked about in the early woodland at uh, the cache at Shikatahawk is these were bipointed lanceolate points that are very large elaborate points. The bipoints that you tend to get in the middle woodland are smaller. Um, these are probably like sort of 10 centimeters at most long. Um, uh, not very big, but they are pointed, so they're um, kind of leaf-shaped, but uh, they tend to be a little bit thicker than the early woodland bifaces. Um, and you don't tend to see them in the southwest or in the northwest or into Maine, which is sort of interesting. You do see them in the lower Wastoke, and you see them throughout eastern New Brunswick and PEI and into Nova Scotia. And in PEI and Nova Scotia, you get another sort of derivation of the of the bipoint which is called the tusket style point and so it's not just bipointed but it actually has barbs or flares or notches on the side of it or shouldered um uh, kind of cool i mean they look like what you would sort of envision a um uh like a like a sort of a, a harpoon style uh point being um which, they're kind which of they kind of be... fat too right like around the the middle yeah. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that yeah. So they're thicker in profile as well. So the the bi points in general are thicker points than than elsewhere, which is sort of interesting too, because um, you know they'd be they're more robust than you would expect. Um, uh, you know, uh, for example, a bow and arrow point to be maybe they're more like a something that was hafted into more of like a dart or a spear point or something like that, or or they're being used as knives. 
um, is another possibility. Yeah. Um, so also my impression uh, is about this period, um, of course, lithic sourcing isn't real. It can't be trusted. We don't know where rocks come from. But if we accept, if we accept, accept the kind of, um, you know, if I accept Ken's ontology here and believe that rocks are real, my uh, understanding and my uh, perception from sites I've worked on, um, actually largely with Al Hansinger, who just had a paper accepted about this in Archaeology of Eastern North America. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, he did a nice job, but using a uh, combination of petrographic series, but also a lot of thin sections of flakes from a middle woodland site that were in the intertidal. And so got permission to section these and, and look at them, uh, you know, using sophisticated geological techniques was that the, at least on the coast, the materials we were seeing are overwhelmingly local. So they're like very nearby materials. Is that your perception of uh, the middle woodland on the interior too? Yeah, so so there's actually, this is one of these things that like we don't always sort of have this cohesive pattern going on throughout the region, but certainly in the middle woodland, what you see is on the coast, you see kind of a retraction and sort of the early woodland, just to remind the listener, was characterized by a lot of um, uh, exotic materials, so materials coming from away, some sort of broad exchange narratives. But by the middle woodland, what we're starting to see is there seem seemingly, at least in the patterning of the lithic materials, is sort of a retraction from these larger um, sort of um, uh, interaction spheres. And so what you're seeing is actually kind of um, clustering of localized materials. And so in the upper Wolostog, so up in like Lacte Mesquata, up into um, sort of northwestern New Brunswick, the Tobik River area, northern Maine, you're getting sources for materials that um, tend to be staying closer to home. So uh, material, like we're not seeing lithics traveling as far. Uh, I work on Washtenaw Chert. Uh, what you see is a dramatic shift in Washtenaw Chert being everywhere in the early woodland uh, and then only in the lower Wolostog uh, in the middle woodland. And then uh, it changes again in the late woodland, which we'll talk about uh, next week. But certainly um, in New Brunswick, you're seeing the same thing. In places like uh, um, on the East Coast, although quartz sort of dominates a lot of sites on the East Coast of New Brunswick, um, that is without question the most prevalent material at like, Oxbow, through, for example, during the Middle Woodland component there, um, and at a number of like sites around there. And so what you're seeing is people are exploiting local materials from a bedrock source, but also increasingly more local um, cobble materials. And so they're not going necessarily going to a source or getting exchanged material from a particular source. Um, they're relying on sort of local materials um, to, Great. to a higher degree. Yeah. Cool. Um, and also just uh, speaking about typology, I'll put Adrian Burke's chapter um, about middle and late woodland period lithic forms in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. From the, the far Northeast volume. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Adrian's. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So the, this was Adrian's sort of um, preliminary attempt at, at kind of building a projectile point chronology for the Maritimes. Um, and, and what he sort of finds is that there are some themes, uh, and, but, uh, but it is kind of hard to tack down. Like it's not, a, it's not as simple as saying this means this and this means that, and that there does seem to be some patterning, as I talked about with the bipoints, for example, that there does seem to be a little bit of patterning sort of northeast part of the Maritimes and the southwest of the Maritimes um, tend to kind of uh, have a little bit different uh, trajectory. And, and Brian Robinson kind of picked up on this um, back in the 90s mm -hmm. uh, when he was looking at, in particular, late woodland stuff, right? And, well, and archaic stuff. It was, he did, but he, he talked about, uh, in, in the woodland, he talked about where Levana points are. So where these yeah, yeah. 
And a, a Levana point is uh, a triangular shaped point, uh, th so which, which we'll talk about next next week as well. In Maine, we call them Levaner points. Um, but they uh, and it's uh, but we'll, we'll talk about those next week. But 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 basically that they they tend to be uh, as you move into Maine, you you actually don't find very many of those triangular point forms as you move into the Maritimes. You um, but they are the dominant late woodland point form through New England. Yeah, and in the Great Lakes, so you get Madison points. Oh yeah, essentially kind of a different take on a on a Levanta point. So yeah, cool. I didn't know that. Um, um, yeah, and so so yeah, so that's kind of the themes when it comes to technology. So cool. So do you want so, to talk about some actual archaeological sites here? I was going to say the uh, as the and some of them even from New Brunswick actually. There you go. The uh, <laughs> that, so, we, um, that we did take some notes on. I know. Yeah. The uh, the but but the the list. The Ken and I are still doing this. We 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 do the sites portion of this as kind of a free association game where we just list sites and we just uh, fill in whatever we remember about them. Um, so uh, and we, you know we might as well start on the coast, right? Um, and I'm going to just kind of note again here that we're, you're going to hear about these sites again because they many of them, maybe maybe all of the coastal ones, also have late woodland um, components, late maritime woodland components, which we're going to talk about next fortnight. And, and so, I think uh, a lot of the interior ones do too, but the late woodland stuff on the interior is harder to tack down because of yeah and stuff. Yeah, well, the, I mean, Ken and I have been legendarily successful at identifying late woodland sites on the interior with good, solid radiocarbon dates. That yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I believe I set out to solve the conundrum of late woodland sites in the. Uh, uh, I, I had the hubris of uh, thinking that my my master's thesis was going to resolve an issue. That by the end of it, I realized, oh, well, I've dug a hole for myself here, and and. Uh, uh, I'm just going to ignore the fact that I tried to try to fix this. <laughs> but so on the coast, we've got these kind of classic um, deep shell heap sites. And part of the reason, actually, I, and part of the major contribution of one of the major contributions of Dave's work, Dave Black's work um, in New Brunswick, Matt Betts's work in Port Jolly, was to look at a wider range of sites. But it's totally understandable that guys like Richard Pearson and Dave Sanger, and actually even before that in the um, in the late 1800s, um, uh, guys like um, G.F. Matthew would look at these really deep sites. And that's because you're trying to basically go after sites that have good preservation, that are really visible, and that have a lot of time in them, you know, so that the basically the bottom of the site is to the top of the site is going to build a lot of culture history. So these sites include ones like Holt Point, um, Minister's Island, uh, Sandy Point, um, Phil's Beach, or the Bocabec site. And these are on the coast of New Brunswick. There's some some notable things from these. Uh, one of them is that the Phil's Beach site was published in 1884, uh, based on some 1883 fieldwork by um, G.F. Matthew, who we talked about way back, I believe, at our second ever um, NB ArcPod show when we were talking about the history of archaeology. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember if Bocabec was middle woodland or a late woodland site. Well, it's a little hard to know, but I, I think it's got some middle woodland there. Yeah. Um, and those are the first um, the first house floors uh, reported from the region. And it's the site that the report that Bruce Trigger, kind of the um, probably the most important 
he's sort of so important across so many different uh, genres, including Egyptology. But he wrote this book called History of Archaeological Thought, which is, uh, you know, it's on my bedstand right now. And um, and uh, but he in a different book in a in a review of uh, 19th century archaeological research described this as basically the best best report of its time. Um, Teacher's Cove is another example. Uh, it has house features. It's got middle woodland radiocarbon dates. Um, lots of shell. And then uh, Minister's Island is a cool site. It's got, uh, it's also got transitional archaic, actually. Um, or, yeah. or right, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, an early woodland burial, too, doesn't it? That's right, yeah. Um, and it's got middle woodland. Um, and then once you go to the islands, you've got sites that Dave Black worked on, Partridge Island, um, the Weir site, the campsite, those kinds of sites. So, um, and they're very cool too. And and we'll link to some of these in the show notes, some of the big accounts like Sanger's book and and Dave Black's book. Yeah. These are these are the Daves I know, as Ken pointed out at the CAA uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then so uh, tell us about the interior, Ken. Uh, so there's a couple sites that we're going to highlight here. Um, again, you'll be you'll be familiar with Fulton Island we've talked about. Um, so uh, certainly the middle woodland component of Fulton Island is probably the largest um, uh, sort of successive fe- uh, number of different features. Um, what appear to be probably, you know, sort of larger features that are probably households. Um, so wigwams, um, you know, basically people living on the island in the summer. Uh, you have the Bullfrog site, which was uh, which is a smaller archaeological site. It was excavated in the late 1980s by uh, Scott Buchanan, um, uh, and uh, radiocarbon date from that sort of puts it right sort of in the middle of the um, middle maritime woodland. Um, so, in using Susan Blair's Lower Lost Oak chronology, we're talking about uh, periods uh, four and five, so the the early and late middle maritime woodland. So she was being she was able to see. Um, basically a distinction between um, the early and late middle maritime woodlands, sort of a, a changing um, uh, strategies in terms of lithics and, and house floors and that sort of thing. Um, the meadow site, which is actually kind of one I want to highlight, uh, sort of unique in that uh, it's one, it was uh, excavated under, you know, as a part of a CRM project. So um, same uh, highway twinning project. It was actually identified during monitoring, which is uh, uh, for those of you who have ever done archaeological monitoring before, this is a bit of a feat. Um, uh, to identify archaeological resources while a large um, excavator is uh, is removing soil. Um, very deep site. I seem to remember it's somewhere, it starts at around like over a meter and a half deep, uh, something Didn't like that. Didn't Darcy somehow manage to see a feature pouring out of the front end of a, a, a backhoe or something? Is it that... was something like that, yeah. yeah. So it was basically like a, it, yeah, it wasn't an artifact, it was a cultural feature that they were able That's to- That's my recollection. Um, and now- this is, uh, it's a fairly large site in that it's made up of um, a whole suite of features, one of which um, uh, Sue calls Sample Unit 25, which is basically a cluster of 19 features arranged in a roughly oval shape. Um, uh, there's kind of interesting features within this larger feature. There's sort of flint napping areas that are kind of in an arc shape, suggesting somebody was like sitting and actually making a stone tool. Um, there's clusters of broken pottery. <clears throat> and. The site's kind of interesting because what it looks like is potentially a ring of wigwams sort of centered around kind of a negative space where there's almost no artifacts. And so maybe it was a place where people were, for example, gathering in the summer and, you know, groups were dancing 
It's also possible that it is um, one single structure, like it's a it's a larger feature that's actually maybe more like a uh, kind of like a longhouse, for example, right? We don't really know for sure, um, but it's certainly compelling in that there's sort of nothing else like it, and it's probably one of the largest feature clusters in the Maritimes that's ever sort of been uncover uncovered as sort of a discrete unit. Radiocarbon dates from three different features actually kind of all line up and overlap and suggest that this was probably occupied at the same time, which is which is really neat. Um, got some other uh, archaeological sites. So I think like so Egbahog, which is uh, also known as Savage Island um, near the Head of Tide. Uh, there's a number of sort of um, uh, diagnostic middle woodland pottery from this site. Um, we know that at least in the contact period or the post contact period, um, this site, uh, this particular island was incredibly important to Wolostokwig and probably had been for millennia. Um, this is a place, a summer gathering area where um, ceremonies were held and um, so uh, certainly a, a site of some significance, um, fairly close to um, uh, Kingsclear First Nation. Um, and, uh, and then further up river under the um, head pond, uh, you've also got places like uh, Meductic, um, uh, has, a, has a middle woodland component. Um, uh, and uh, then you also have jumping back down in around the Grand Lakes area, you've got the Gemsake site, which we've talked about before, um, and Oxbow, which is uh, up in the Miramichi River. Um, again, fairly large middle woodland component. Um, in fact, you know, like I said, the, the by points that were recovered from there and a lot of the pottery from Oxbow has been kind of critical to understanding New Brunswick chronology. Um, as we sort of build culture history more broadly. Um, and within the Lower Wolostok itself, there's actually sort of some interesting patterning about site locations. So um, at Cow Point and at Ring Island, which are both places where um, we have evidence for uh, late archaic Moorhead um, uh, cemeteries, uh, you actually have middle woodland campsites there as well. And so there's particular um, places in the landscape that are being reoccupied um, sort of shift from ceremonial landscapes to probably more just sort of habitation sites basically and um, I, I am sure that we are glancing over uh, dozens of other sites um, uh, you know uh, I, I don't have a, a particularly good grasp of the interior upper regions but certainly one of the things that Adrian Burke points to in his dissertation is that um, as with elsewhere and as with the Lower Wolostok, what you're starting to see during this time period is kind of a settling into these different regions, right? And so um, we talked about how lithics become kind of localized. And what we're seeing is that the upper Wolostok groups are sort of staying, uh, kind of operating in that region. You know, the middle Wolostok, we don't have a ton of data on, but we suspect that that's probably the same kind of thing going on. Within the Lower Wolostok, what it appears is that groups are uh, primarily sort of exploiting local resources so at Bullfrog, for example, um, you know, well over, uh, what's the percentage here? Um, it's something like 85% of the lithics are, are local or known or very likely local cobble sources. Um, the same thing is going on at the- I prefer center. allegedly when we're talking about rocks, but- Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, so yeah. allegedly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you're also seeing too, the same thing like in the Quadi region where you're seeing fewer um, uh, exotic materials coming into the region. And so we don't really know what is precipitating this uh, or what, you know, what the sort of the, you know, the causal factors are for sort of this retraction. But what we do see is, you know, um, people staying in places for a longer period of time um, or staying within the regions for longer periods of time. And, and 
Uh, do you have any thoughts, like what uh, what's going on there? I know that you and Matt have, um, uh, in your book, have talked about, and and this is not, this is something like Jim Tuck talked about years ago, in that sometime around 2,200 years ago, we start to see kind of the truest, um, uh, we start to be able to speculate a little bit more about who these people were. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so I mean, I think that there's some interesting things that are going on in this period. I mean, and I think one of the things is that we start to see basically strategies that we would ordinarily associate with complexity start to kind of appear in a big way, you know, for the first time since the late archaic, right? Where we see um, evidence for aggregation. We see uh, evidence probably for expanding population. We see though, you know, some of this is happening like I think you mentioned in in a very local kind of environment, right? A very sort of localized, you know, you sort of almost like defining people defining themselves kind of in almost opposition to this big Hopewell stuff that's happening elsewhere. Um, you know, and, that, and that's I mean, Matt's talked about that. You know, that the the degree to which people in the Maritimes probably like knew people who'd been, you know, to see these sort of serpent mounds and things like that seems pretty likely right so you sort of you know you have these ideas about how all these different um about your place in the world right and about what your um identity is as opposed to that i mean i think you know i mean we're we you know you and me and uh matt certainly uh, other kinds of people kind of push these kind of continuity narratives and i think that's another important thing to keep in mind is that you know we're very much talking about the ancestors of the contemporary wabanaki people yeah, yeah, and that there, and that, and that's sort of what I was thinking of is that you know what you're seeing is sort of a very true expression of uh, a Wabanaki identity that is, um, you know, has been there all along, but is kind of seemingly for the first time sort of in contrast to other peoples around them, right? Or mm-hmm. at least for the first time in, in a couple thousand years that you know you're seeing this kind of we do things a little bit differently, um, and and sort of a conscious decision to not participate in what are, you know, big movements, like you said, mm-hmm. like, you know, there's no way that these groups, that groups on the East Coast were not aware of what was going on. And I'm sure people within their, within their society had been down to see what's going on, right? Um, so, so yeah, yeah, so maybe, maybe, you know, well, uh, there's Washtenaw Church in those mounds. <laughs> well, Ken, I'm looking at a uh, half-finished uh, bottle of uh, Couvassier, so should we, uh, should we leave the listener on that note and then turn to our hit pieces? Uh, I think that's probably a good idea. Okay. Um, and so you've got a hit piece here, uh, the Mi'kma'wi DeBert Cultural Center. Yeah. Hold on. I've got the wrong window open. Um, Uh-oh. Yeah. The, uh, we'll speak to our producer about this listener. Don't worry. Hold on. This is the problem with two computers. Oh. <laughs> the listener can see that, that Ken is, is, uh, is, is staring furtively at one of the eight monitors in front of him. It actually it looks like um, the, uh, you know, the, in the movies where, they, where they've got somebody on the bridge and is trying to figure out, uh, you know, where the dinosaurs have gone or something like that. Yeah, this is the, the show notes are very helpful, but when uh, you are looking for something on one screen, it's not on there. It's uh, distracting. 
Um, so uh, while we were at the CAA, uh, which was hosted by Member Two First Nation, um, a fairly large presence from the uh, Mi'kma'wi Debert group, um, which is so uh, the Debert Paleo Indian site, as we talked about before. Um, uh, there is a community in that area, um, and there's also a sort of a group that has done a significant amount of work in that area. Um, lead archaeologist is Leo Rosenmeyer. Um, and uh, so uh, for a long time, uh, they've got a series of trails in the area, some interpretive placards and that kind of thing. But for the long time, uh, the goal has always been to build a cultural center. And so the Mi'kma'wi Debert Cultural Center is now actually slated to open in spring 2025. Um, but some of that is contingent on them raising funds for the facility. Um, the goal is to, uh, for it to be a museum, education center, and a research and collections facility um, that will house uh, Mi'kmaq, uh, Mi'kmaq uh, Debert, uh, or Mi'kmaq artifacts, uh, and, uh, and also encourage research with archaeologists and other folks. Um, and so basically they are raising money to uh, make the uh, Mi'kmaq Debert Cultural Center happen. Um, this is a charitable foundation too, so uh, donations will actually result in a tax receipt. Um, we're going to link the uh, website for it, mi'kma'widebert.com slash donations, uh, in the show notes. Um, and we would encourage you to, um, to lend money toward this like really fantastic um, uh, uh, initiative and, and something that I think um, all descendant communities probably on, uh, on the East Coast would love to have something that would be basically a a repository and a research facility for community members, for uh, archaeologists, and, uh, and an, an opportunity for, um, for example, in this case, for Mi'kmaq to uh, demonstrate, display, and describe their own histories. Um, uh, and I think it's a really fascinating and, and fabulous idea and, uh, and really hope to see it happen. So Yeah, and, and one hopes maybe that uh, it, just on a practical level too, will help to address the curation crisis in the Maritimes, basically running yeah. out of space to store um, archaeological materials. Well, that is exactly. great. Um, uh, mine uh, this week is also uh, an example of an Indigenous-led uh, project, is my understanding. And this is a paper posted to the preprint service, and we'll link it in the show notes, but uh, preprint service called SSRN, which I suspect means the paper will appear in its published form sometime soon. I think I think papers usually get, pub get posted this SSRN when they're in review and then eventually the final paper gets published. But this paper is called A Novel Index for Vulnerability Assessment of Archaeological Sites to Flood Hazard, Development, and a Practical Application in the Wabanaki Nation, Canada. And that's by Khalid Obanakor and colleagues. And so dealing with um, ways to try to basically quantify the, uh, the risks that archaeological sites face due to... Um, floods forecast over the next uh, various periods, various timescales to uh, use that as a management tool. Yeah. So it looks and, interesting. And, yeah, and very relevant too, you know, like in my own work, uh, you know, uh, storm frequency and flood frequency is definitely having a direct impact on archeological resources. So Washington Lake, for example, the floods in 2018 and 2019 were bigger than they had ever been before. Um, and as a result, I found a lot of stuff in the survey in 2019 and, and I think, and a lot of this stuff is coming from sites that were basically ripped apart from floodwaters. And um, that's the kind of thing these one in a hundred year floods seem to be happening, happening with some frequency. Yeah, well, that's that's the Canadian hundred, which is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, and Ken, so in about a fortnight, we will be back and we will be talking about the late woodland. That's my jam.
I know. It's both of our jams, actually. We're sort of yeah. late woodland enthusiasts. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, um, the late woodland's fun. It's when uh, the woodland's fun in general. It is, yeah. As the listener uh, will have gathered because they turned this on, you know, eight hours ago and Ken and I are still here. So, uh, <laughs> are you sick of us yet, listener? Uh, <laughs> the, but they uh, know so, about oysters. That's the... Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're happy to give oyster recommendations. Um, well, thanks very much for tuning in, listener, and we will see you in about a fortnight. And uh, thanks, as always, for listening, and uh, take care. Thank you, listeners. See you next